who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Welcome to episode 19 of South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 40, Aram's Inlet, April 15, 2305. Sitting that close to nothing at eight kilometers in the air was too much for Casey. She sat in the back seat and let Jimmy have the cockpit view. It didn't seem to bother him. They'd taken off just before the sun peeked over the eastern horizon and Sonia took them almost straight up until they'd reached what she called cruising altitude. She turned the flitter so that the clear golden sun on the horizon was straight out the port side window and pushed the throttles to the stops. Other than a faint keening as the wind screamed over the outside surfaces, the inside was relatively quiet. Casey settled back into the seat, watching the flat panel of water below. They flew over the headland and out over the ocean so quickly that Casey only got a quick glimpse of the boats working the old man's bank off to starboard before they were alone. Pale green sky above, dark green sea below. It was easy for her to think that they were just hung there, not moving. The warmth of the flitter and the low murmurs from the front as they discussed positions, scans, and the state of the art in remote sensing soon lulled her into a light doze. Some subtle shift in the flitter woke her to see Sonia and Jimmy both looking straight down, and Casey saw the horizon shifting upwards just slightly as they began their hover down to the water. Without a boat or something to give scale, it was difficult to deal with what her eyes were telling her. Suddenly they were low enough, and the sense of it snapped into focus. Low, smooth waves rolled across the water only a few meters below them. There was a stippling on the surface that she recognized as wind ripple. Sonia said, local wind speed 12 kilometers per hour from the southwest. Ambient air temperature 26 centigrade. A nice day for a flyby. On the console between the two front seats, Sonia brought up a map grid with satellite false color imagery overlays. Okay, we're right in the middle of the ridge, she said. On another screen, she brought up a bottom scan. That's a five-kilometer ring around us, she said. We'll record a strip at a time as we go. She pointed the flitter west and began the survey. Jimmy looked at Casey over his shoulder and pointed to the bottom finder. It's not flat, but it's flat enough for trawling, he said. 
The screen was a uniform color with subtle shadings indicating slight variations in depth. She couldn't be sure, reading the unfamiliar instruments, but it looked like it might be flatter than even pumpkin grounds. The bottom was running slightly up and down, but hanging right around 85 meters. They weren't moving very quickly, or so it seemed to Casey, but in a matter of just a few ticks, Sonia said, Okay, first 20 kilometers scan, turning 90 degrees north for 7. The horizon spun as the sun's direction through the canopy changed. They moved north for only a very short way before Sonia announced, turning 90 east, beginning second 20-kilometer scan. In just a few ticks, they'd completed the backtrack, and Sonia turned south, running a parallel track seven kilometers south of the original one. They made three more of these boxed passes when they found the mount. Up until that point, Casey wondered what she was there for, when the false color image showed a nearly sudden break in color, edging in from the northeast, she almost squeaked. The bottom had been so uniformly colored that the change was that much more startling. Is that up or down? she asked Sonia. Up, she said, and a long way up. The scan revealed the southern edge of an underwater plateau sitting on the ridge. It disappeared back off the edge of the screen after a couple of kilometers, but it prompted a hurried consultation between Jimmy and Sonia. They finished their eastward pass, but instead of turning south, they turned north and made another pass on the same side of the box. The plateau cut all the way across their path. Casey could make out the reverse look of the edge they'd passed on the way east because of the two-kilometer overlap. As they passed slowly over the top of it, it became apparent that it was roughly ovoid, three kilometers across on the north-south axis and five kilometers east-west. Casey looked out the windows and almost expected to see it under them. The top of the plateau was only 23 meters below the surface. In the front, Sonia said, it's probably a basalt plug from some really old volcano. Volcanoes aren't that uncommon on plate fault lines, and the subduction zone here just lifted it up a little closer to the surface. Why does it have such steep sides? Jimmy asked. The rock around it was much softer. It wore away much more quickly, leaving just that plug of basalt sticking up out of the bottom. I'll bet there are more of them across the ridge, Sonia replied. Will they be a problem for fishing around? Casey asked her. Sonia shrugged. Well, they're too deep to worry a haul, and not all that common that you won't have them all identified on charts in a matter of days once you get set up out here. They were coming to the end of their leg, and Sonia said, Okay, Jimmy, we're down to about a half a stand before we have to go back. We got time for a quick peek at the fish stocks before we leave, or we can go back and look that plateau over a little more. Fish stocks, Jimmy said, without an iota of hesitation. We got bottoms, we got a potential anchorage, now we need to know if we have fish. Sonia grinned and reached down to pull a release lever that seemed to thunk under the belly of the flitter. There was a whining sound that reverberated through the frame, and when it stopped, the bottom screen changed image from the solid color picture showing the bottom contours to a more familiar sonar fish finder view. How are you getting that? Casey asked. Just lower the sonar transponder into the water, she said. We'll tow it for a few ticks, and you and Jimmy can see what's there in terms of sea life. She turned the flitter on a southeasterly direction to cut diagonally across the bottoms that they just surveyed. Jimmy and Casey stared at the graphs unreeling on the screen. Every once in a while, some particularly dense school would show up on the bottom. Jimmy would point it out to Casey in his excitement. After just a few ticks, Jimmy said, Okay, I've seen enough. How about you, Casey? Yeah, she said, that's amazing. Nothing like pristine fishing grounds to make you realize how close to the edge ours really are. Sonia slowed the forward velocity and reeled in the sonar probe until it clunked into its compartment under the flitter. In a tick, the doors were closed, and the flitter was swinging northward and beginning its climb up to cruising altitude for the long run back to the inlet. All the way back, Jimmy and Casey discussed the logistics of how to get ten draggers working on the area immediately around the undersea plateau. 
They had very good charts of a 15 by 20 kilometer region of the undersea ridge top. They replayed the recordings of the sonar run several times on the way back, each time noticing something different. The stumbling block was always how to get the fish back to shore in a timely manner. The trip back took exactly the same amount of time as the trip out, but somehow it didn't seem as long to Casey. As they slid in over the coastline and began their descent into the flitter park at Aram's Inlet, Sonia got pulled into the conversation, too. After they landed and finally stepped down out of the flitter, stretching and wincing in some cases, Sonia asked, So, the problem is what to do with the fish? Yeah, Jimmy said. It's pretty clear that we'll be able to catch them, but then what? We can even process them, but we need to get them out of there really fast because otherwise it'll start backing up on us. Well, why don't you just build a shuttle pad and take them straight up to orbit, she asked. Casey and Jimmy stared at each other in slack-jawed amazement. Chapter 41, Calum's Cove, April 20, 2305. Rachel grinned as she walked up to the front of the building. Some wag had put up a rough sign, Krug's Crabs, and Open for Business. Not exactly, she murmured to herself. She swung open the double doors and looked at the stacks of crab pots. Soon enough, though, she thought. She crossed the floor and, releasing the catches, put her shoulder to one of the large back doors. The morning light flooded the dim interior and showed just how much a few people could do in a short period of time. The floor had been washed, not just swept, but power-hosed clean after the worst of the detritus had been picked up and tossed into a rubbish container. The bundles and cases of crab pot parts were largely gone now, but the assembly line they'd created had turned that pile of pieces into a hundred crab pots in a matter of hours. The keg of beer from the gurry butt had something to do with the onslaught of volunteers. With half the fleet tied up on any given day, there were a lot of people around to help, and the project was the talk of the town, supplanting even landing quarters as a source of speculation and amusement. Rachel grabbed the front stack of pots and started to drag it toward the big doors. For their first survey, she decided on dropping ten of the pots in various locations around the harbor. Alan had provided the company utility launch as a fishing platform, while the yard at the inlet finished building her the custom-designed boat. She and Mary had spent a giddy afternoon sketching out their specifications on a standard 10-meter utility boat design template. The giddiness was part excitement and partly the bottle of single malt, but it had been fun. Alan forwarded the design to Jake, and they expected the new boat any day. Alan pulled up in a Pirano cargo wagon about the time Rachel finished dragging out the second stack of pots. The little cargo wagons were small electric tractors that towed a single anti-grav pallet. The company used them for moving heavy parts and bulky supplies around the village. Morning, Rachel, Alan called as he swung the wagon around so the pallet was handy. There was something in his voice that made Rachel wonder what he was up to. Good morning, Alan, she replied. You seem in good spirits this morning. He grinned. Oh, I am. New ventures always make me cheerful. Rachel thought he sounded a little too cheerful, but he bent to the task of restacking the pots onto the pallet with a will so she couldn't complain. A small, well-sealed bucket of bait went on the pallet as well. Even with the cover on it, there was a definite whiffiness that clipped the nose a bit. Stepping back a step or two, Alan asked, Anything else? Rachel checked the load again and shook her head. Just let me close the doors. Alan tossed a cargo harness across the load and clipped it down while Rachel closed up shop. In a tick, they were humming down the lane toward the pier. Alan was humming a little to himself and tapping gleefully on the steering wheel as he drove. He was acting like a canary-filled cat. "'What's going on, Alan?' she asked. "'What?' 
Alan tried to play the confused innocent, but not very effectively. You're way too cheerful. You're up to something, she accused him. Me? What could I be up to? He protested. They rounded the last corner and headed out onto the pier toward the small boat dock. Rachel was looking at Alan's face, so she didn't notice until he pulled up and stopped. It wasn't until she stepped off the wagon that she spared a glance for the boat that most decidedly was not the Pirano utility launch. How? she asked. It was all she could get out of her mouth as her eyes dealt with the conflict between what she expected to see and what was actually there. Jake had it flown out last night, Alan said gleefully. I got the word around dinner time last night, and the yard gang delivered it just before sunset. Rachel's eyes swept the craft from stem to stern, stuttering on the features that she'd asked for and even more on the ones that Jake had added from his own experience. The pilot station was perfectly placed forward and close to the rail. The bows had a non-stick decking across them and cubby spaces underneath, judging from the small doors she could see. The whole aft three-quarters of the boat was open except for a wide rail on the starboard side that looked like a line of pots would sit on it perfectly. There was the winch she'd asked for, and there was the electronics array, cleverly tucked up under the cover of a simple flying canopy roof over the pilot station. There was also a sorting table and clips. Cleats and tie-down points were everywhere. "'You going to look at it all day, or are you going to take it out?' Mary asked. She swung around to see Mary, Jane McGill, and a couple of the other people who'd helped over the last week walking up the pier. "'Flown,' Rachel finally focused. "'It flies?' Alan laughed. "'No, they've got a cargo lifter at the yard. Jake just had them fly it over as soon as he got it ready to go. He knows Jimmy's serious about this.' "'Come on, lady,' Mary said as she started unclipping the cargo harness from the pallet. "'You could admire it later. We've got crabs to catch.' She grabbed the bait bucket and stepped lightly aboard the boat herself to direct the stowage. Alan took Rachel through the various controls and functions at the pilot station, while Mary and her crew stacked the empty pots in the stern. It took almost half a stand for them to get it all sorted out, and by that time Richard and Otto had joined the party on the dock. Otto's staff clattered in the breeze that fluttered the edges of Richard's poncho. Looking up from the deck of the boat, Rachel grinned. What do you think? she asked. Otto grinned right back, his boyish features emerging in his joy. She's beautiful, he said. She's perfect. What are you going to call her? It was one of those questions that drop into a lull and draw the attention of everybody around. Rachel felt it as everybody paused to hear what she'd say. She looked around at the faces. She looked at the boat. She looked to Otto, who smiled encouragingly, and she looked up into her husband's face. You're the shaman, Richard. You tell me. What's her name? She asked with a smile. All eyes turned to Richard then all of them waiting to see what he'd say, what he'd do. He smiled back at Rachel and caught her in his eyes as his gaze focused elsewhere, not inward exactly and not outward, just elsewhere for one moment that might have been measured in heartbeats. Then he released her from his gaze. With a mischievous grin and a twinkle in his eye that reminded Rachel so much of his father, he said, Crabby Patty. There was a moment of stunned silence, and then Mary started giggling. I love it, she said, and hugged Rachel. The rest of the crew laughed in appreciation, and Rachel found herself smiling back at Richard. Crabby Patty it is, then, she pronounced. We'll get it painted on the stern later. Right now we got to get some pots in the water, or we'll have to name her Crabless Patty. Everybody but Rachel and Mary scrambled out of the boat. Rachel looked at Mary with a question in her eye. "'Well, you don't expect I'm going to stay ashore on the first run, do you?' Mary answered. Rachel started to laugh then and said, "'No, of course not. Silly me.' 
We'll be back in plenty of time to help with lunch, Mary said. Just get that boy aboard and we'll get underway. Rachel looked at Richard, who nodded, and Otto clambered aboard, staff and all. She fired up the engines as Mary showed Otto the finer points of line handling. In a matter of a tick or two, the Krabby Patty was pushing away from the pier to the cheers of the onlookers. Where are we going to place these, Mary? Rachel asked over the sound of the motor. Mary came up to stand beside the podium as Otto leaned on the bows. If it were me, I'd run this first line of ten from about there. She pointed to a spot in the bay that was out of the way of the main channel, but still close to the end of the piers. Out to about there, and put the last one right where the ledge drops down. She pointed across the harbor, to where the rocky ledge marking the outer arm of the cove angled down into the water, about one every hundred meters or so. Rachel squinted, measuring the distances with her eye, said, Okay, sounds good. Let's get these traps baited and ready to go, then. Mary helped Otto pry the lid off the bait bucket, and even standing up wind of it, it was a bit smelly. Mary stood well back herself and gave Otto a pair of long rubber gloves. Otto, for his part, didn't seem to notice the smell, just slipped on the gloves and proceeded to put a bit of fish into the bait pouch of each of the ten traps. He worked smoothly, and with Mary's help in holding the traps open and putting the baited traps on the trap rail, he had most of them baited by the time Mary actually pushed the first trap into the water. The weighted cylinder of netting sank quickly, leaving the orange and blue buoy bobbing jauntily on the surface. Rachel picked her course to run outside the channel, but across the widest part of the bay as much as possible. Every few ticks, Mary slid another trap off the stern. Rachel just kept the boat moving slowly forward, and in less than half a stand the first traps were in the water. A neat trail of orange and blue points ran in a smooth line across the harbor. Rachel threw the boat into neutral as the last trap went over the side, and they stood there looking back across the bay. Rachel could make out Richard's red poncho at the end of the dock, but only as a small point of color. Now what? she asked. Mary grinned. Now you take me back to the pier and think about how and where you want to put the next ten. And talk to Alan about processing the crabs you bring back, she said. Now I already talked to him. Rosie's going to take some of them and have a crab boil tonight at the diner to celebrate. I don't know how many we're going to catch in this first run, but I'm sure we'll be able to get rid of them. Ten pots worth? One day? Probably, Mary agreed. But you should put at least 50 pots and scatter them across the bay to see how the different areas produce. I'm betting there's not a lot of difference anywhere in here, but it would be good to know for sure. Rachel pushed the throttles forward and spun the wheel to take them back to the dock while she thought about it. You're right. I better talk to Alan. Chapter 42 Aram's Inlet, April 20, 2305. Jimmy was ready to scream. We got a place, we got a plan, what we don't have is time. Jake sat across the table from him and shook his head. We can build the barges for the dorms, the fuel, the water. We can even get enough to put up a processing plant to get the fish ready to go. He sighed then. What we can't do is make enough to build a breakwater out of them. We can get every yard in the south coast working on them, but by the time they get built and dragged out there, it'll be too late to fish. Okay, Jimmy said, what other ideas? We need to build a platform 1,200 kilometers out to sea on a foundation that's 25 meters underwater. It has to be strong enough to hold an orbital shuttle and all the cargo, and it has to be no smaller than 100 by 100 meters. Tony threw down his stylus and leaned back in his chair. We've been fighting this for days. What have we thought of? Barges as building blocks, Jake contributed. Barges as pontoons, Jimmy said. Barges full of rocks, Tony said. 
Shuttles full of rocks, Jimmy added. I still say that would work, Tony said, if we could find enough shuttles. Steel towers, Jake said. Concrete towers, Tony added. That will work, Jimmy said, but it'll take longer than we have. Grav pallets, Jake said. They'd be okay until we need to recharge them. They ran out of steam and just sat there looking at each other. We need a different idea, Jimmy said at last. Everybody nodded glumly. Jake stood up and said, We'll have the dorm barge completed in another week. The prefab housing units only need to be bolted down. It's an established design, so no problems. The Alouette Yard is making the three fish processing barges. They'll mount the equipment, and it'll be ready to tow in three weeks. That gives us time to build another barge here for the potable water. The fuel barge, we're just trading a new one later for one of Murchis's old ones now. He can cope with one less if we build him a new one before the summer's over. Jimmy grinned. Thanks, Jake. I'm glad you're on this case. Jake shuffled out, scratching his head and mumbling. Where are we going to get different ideas, Jimmy? Tony asked. Jimmy shrugged. I thought I'd call Violet and ask how she makes those grain elevators, he said. Tony stood and stretched his back. Can't hurt. I still say if we could figure out a way to get the concrete pilings out there, that's the way to go. Yeah, Jimmy agreed. I'm with you, but we just don't have time. Jimmy took a deep breath and placed a call to Violet. Jim! She took his call immediately and smiled warmly. He tried not to melt, but it was difficult. Hey, Vi, how's the season shaping up? She gave a little sideways head nod and a shrug. We're going to be ahead in grains and produce, but behind on mutton and lamb. I don't really know how that will affect the contract, but I suppose it will depend on how well you do with the fish. If you go long on protein, then we'll be able to substitute here. True, he said. I saw the contracts the old man sent down, too. How are you doing? she asked. I've been watching the landings as they come onto PlanetNet. She looked concerned. Yeah, well, he said. I know where to get the fish. The problem is getting to them. Tell me. Maybe I can help, she said. He grinned. Thanks. I was hoping you'd say that. He fought back the memories of the old days when they'd first been married and how much pleasure they'd taken from solving the unsolvable together. The fish are 1,200 kilometers out. Yeah, Sonia said you'd found a new bank. She also said you found a seamount to work off. It sounds so simple until you try to do something out there. It's three days by boat each way. Ten draggers out there will pull in over a megaton a day. We need to find a way to get all that fish ashore before it goes bad, or find a way to process it out there and move a megaton a day of processed fish. Well, how do you normally move that cargo? Cargo lifters take it to the marshalling yards where the shuttles pick it up and boost it into orbit, he said. Well, they have a range of 500 kilometers. They're built for muscle, not duration. Oh, I see. We need to have a base out there that can support 10 draggers, 20 crews, a small processing plant, and a shuttle pad. Violet didn't even flinch at the mention of the shuttle pad. So what's the problem? It's 1,200 kilometers out. We're trying to think of some reasonably stable engineering project that will get us through this season so we can plan for next. Actually, building it would be child's play with a couple of years to work on it. We only have a couple of months before we begin running out of time. Barges? she asked. I can't get enough of them fast enough. How many do you need? she asked incredulously. Almost a hundred. She whistled in appreciation. By the time we get enough yards working to complete the task, we can't get them out there in time. You sure? she asked. There's only a dozen yards within a 500-kilometer radius of us here. Even if we sent them directly out rather than coming here first, that means we all need to get moving in about six weeks. That's less than 40 barges. What's the cargo capacity of the barges, she asked. About two megatons. It'll take them almost a week to get out there. 
Okay, simplify it for a simple farmer, Jim, she said, if I can. How are you going to get the supplies out there to the crews? My shuttles will drop off supplies and pick up fish, he said. You're planning on a megaton a day of processed fish. Right. Okay. The problem is you can't figure out how to build a platform at sea that'll let a shuttle land? Oh, no, I know how to do that. It just takes more time than we have. How'd your sister do it on Umber? she asked. They went in with special gear. We could do it the same way, but it'd take ten weeks to get the gear from Dunsany and at least four months to build a platform. You're making it too complicated, Jim. Okay, simplify it for a simple fisherman, he said with a grin. You're over-engineering, what is, for all intents and purposes, an exploratory effort. The seamount lets you have some anchorage, and you said yourself you can have 40 barges in time. Yeah, okay, so far. So it takes a week to get a barge out from the inlet. About that, yeah. Well, she said, it'll take the boats a couple of days to fill a barge. Will the product keep aboard the barge once it's processed? Oh, yeah, Jimmy said, it's not the issue. Violet blinked at him. Then send a fresh barge every two days. Load the outgoing ones with your supplies and fill the incoming ones with fish. But that would take... Jimmy froze. Yes? Only seven barges, he finished. Violet shrugged. Seems like it would be cheaper to get the fish in by barge than try to arrange special shuttle pickups and all the rest of that that goes with it. If it works out, then you could spend the time working on the seamount. Load up some of the barges with rocks or blocks or something. Boats won't use a megaton of supplies a day. A new barge will be hitting their location every other day. Over the course of the summer, you could probably build that seamount up quite a bit. Just a barge load at a time, if that's what you want to do. He sighed and would have laughed if he hadn't felt so stupid. Thanks. And to think, I called to ask you how you build those grain elevators. Oh, they're poured in place with a plasticrete mix and a form. How tall are they? Forty meters, mostly. I wonder what it would take to have four of them poured on the seamount, he said idly. Well, I can have my guy call you if you want, she offered. Later, Vi. I think you've just given me the answer I need. You're right. I'm thinking way too permanent for an exploratory effort. Just let me know, Jim, she said warmly. Thanks, Vi. I will, he said. I better go talk to Jake about getting those yards making barges, he finished, a bit huskily. Stay in touch, Jim, she said. Jimmy thought she might be going to say more, but she didn't. She just cut the connection. He sat there for a tick, shaking his head. We thought of everything but barges as barges, he muttered to himself, and then got Jake on the line and started giving orders. Thanks for listening to South Coast, a shaman's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from Wish by Raphael Garcia Perdigon. Available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Dorandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.dorandis.org/golden.